And so there's a lot of research that talks about how people don't really cross class lines as much as, as we'd like. And so we've done that. And so you can really get a sense of being able to be a chameleon in some ways. And so there's a certain strength in that as well. Hi, everyone. I'm Michaela. I'm Cecilia. And Anitra here. And, and welcome, welcome to, to MedLife. Finding your footing as a first generation and or low income student in medicine. We're all FGLI students ourselves, which is an acronym for first generation and or low income. And we attend the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. We know that being FGLI in higher education can be isolating at times. Our goal with this podcast is to build a community of support for FGLI students. Every episode, we, along with a number of special guests, are going to be sharing our perspectives about navigating a career in medicine as FGLI individuals. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of MedLegs. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Damon Tweedy. Dr. Tweedy is a general psychiatrist at the Durham VA system and is an associate professor at Duke University School of Medicine. And you may know him from his New York Times bestselling book, Black Man in a White Coat. We're excited to speak with Dr. Tweedy today to know more about his first-generation low-income background. There's a lot of media coverage about him and his book that focuses on his experience as a Black individual from his journey as a medical student to a physician, but it barely touches on his background as an FGLI individual, so we want to delve more into his experience growing up and ultimately going into medicine as an individual from a working class background. And we want to look more at the intersection between the identity of being Black and being FGLI in medicine. And though these two identities shouldn't be conflated, their intersection is a unique experience in medicine. So Dr. Tweedy, thank you so much for being here. Can you start off by telling us a day in your life as a young student from a working class family? So the area I grew up in, it's called Prince George's County, which is an area in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., to get you a frame. So, so Prince George's County is, is a suburb of Washington, D.C., um, largely African-American. Um, that's, that changed a lot over time as I was growing up. Uh, it became increasingly African-American. Um, it, it ran the full spectrum. There's people there sort of uh, further out that were more wealthy. Um, then there's some kind of more in the middle. Then the closer you get to D.C., the, the sort of the kind of the poor uh, folks were. I was kind of in the sort of in that, it's called an inside or outside the highway. I was sort of right on the slightly on the inside of it. The neighborhood I grew up in was working class. Um, so, you know, most of the folks there are in, in sort of like, you know, trade kind of work, you know, what we now call essential jobs, you know, like in this COVID world, my dad worked at the grocery store. You know, we think about that as being a central worker. Um, my mom had a job as a sort of a, as a kind of clerical work for, for a government uh, agency in DC. Um, so neither of them were college educated and most people there in the, in the neighborhood were people like truck drivers and, you know, um, you know, repair people and, and that, that sort of world is kind of what I grew up in. Um, so yeah, so, you know, that's the where I grew up in. And as an eighth grader, I was in a, in a middle school again, as I mentioned earlier, that was, um, low performing, if you will. A lot of the kids were not on the track to go to college. Many kids with free and reduced luncheons and that sort of, uh, um, you know, qualified for that. So that's sort of a path, um, but, you know, I, I was always pretty good with numbers and math. And that was sort of the kind of the one thing that was almost like a way to kind of retreat to my own little world. I was grew up interested in sports. And so you know, I would read a sports page and I, and I kind of had affinity for numbers. And so I was good at math. It translated to math. Um, and then as an eighth grader, I did well in a series of tests. And a teacher asked me to um, apply for a uh, magnet program. 
Um, and so that was, it was a science and tech magnet program at, at, a, at a, a neighboring high school in the district. Uh, and that was sort of, you know, this is where the sort of the first generation part comes in, uh, but also the part about being African-American, because uh, when I was approached to, to take this exam, my initial reaction was to kind of scoff at the idea and to not think that it was something that I would fit in. I had a vision of all the students there being, you know, first of all, I had students of not being black, but also being a parent who were successful and educated. And the idea of me going to a program like that seemed just like kind of like a distant something that wasn't real almost. Right. And so um, that's sort of the world I, I was kind of in uh, at that point. When you got into the magnet program, did you think then that you were then like, oh, yes, like if I got in here, I'm going to go to college, too? Or was that still not even in your mind? So college was in my mind, yes. Um, medical school, absolutely not. Um, and something like that. I mean, so college, yes, because I'll tell you. So um, just to kind of give you a better sense of my family background. So I told you about my parents. And I have an older brother. My brother's 10 years older than I am. And so he was one of the first people in our, and I have a, come from a very large family of folks, but he's one of the, my brother, my dad had 10, um, there are 10 siblings on his side of the family. So an enorm, enormous family on that side in particular. But, uh, and they grew up like in the, in the kind of rural South uh, and then migrated North. Um, that whole great migration thing that have been books written about. Um, but, but, you know, my, um, my brother's 10 years older than me and uh, he was, um, he went to college at University of Maryland College Park. And he, and so there's a couple of things about him that's really important, I think, for my own development. Because he's one of the first people in our family to go to college. Um, but also, so he kind of normalized it in that sense, right? Um, but he was also one of the first people in our neighborhood to go to college, like as a, as a, particularly as a male, and just as a student. So I think so many people sort of just kind of take that for granted, like what that means to kind of go to college and be a regular student. Because I, as, I, as I mentioned in other uh, forms, um, where I grew up, there, there's, there's a um, sort of, maybe it's in the water, but there are a lot of successful kind of people in athletics. And it seemed as if that was kind of your only way to kind of get to college if you were a male. There are a lot of men in my neighborhood who played like, basketball in college. They played football in college. They ran track, baseball. So, and that was their ticket to getting to college. Otherwise it was like, you know, college or bust almost, uh, I mean, sports or bust as far as going to college. But my brother was kind of that one exception in the neighborhood in, in some ways. And so that was extremely important to have that in my own family, um, kind of normalize it in some ways. So I think that was helpful, but he still, he wasn't in like a magnet program. He was still more or less a regular student in high school. So for me to go to that magnet program was still a different experience because it was like a it was like a step up, or if you will, or, or a more intense uh, level of, of uh, you know, of uh, the setting. So earlier on in the conversation, you said that you it sounded like you had some reservations about the the magnet program when you when your guidance counselor initially or the teacher initially proposed um, you attending the school. What did that conversation look like with your family, with yourself? Like, how did you eventually get to the decision where you felt comfortable going to this program? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a, it was a, some of the reservations were a mix of race and class. So part of it was that I kind of had a sense that the magnet program was um, going to be overwhelmingly students who were white and Asian for, for and that was the, it was one piece. Right. And so there was a sense, there was already a sense of um, internalizing that maybe I wouldn't be able to sort of meet those, that, that sort of standard, if you will. So there's that piece. Uh, then there's also the piece of, again, thinking that these students had parents who were sort of professionally trained and educated and not being able to fit on, on, the, on that level. Um, what helped, um, that teacher was extremely persistent. Um, and as far as the conversation with my family goes, uh, you know, I kind of kept it from my family until the teacher said, uh, you know, uh, she called my mom and said, well, why isn't 
Damon, you know, signed up for this test, this sort of thing. And then my mom's like, I didn't know about it. And there was a little bit of a, are you crazy? You're going to take this test kind of thing. So my mom was definitely very supportive. And she, so in the end, she encouraged me to, to, to take the test. And I did well. And, you know, it was like, a, you know, it was just basically like a mini SAT kind of thing. Um, and I did pretty well on it, well enough to, you know, certainly get into this program. And uh, so that's where that sort of started. So it sounds like this teacher really believed in your potential. What does that teacher mean to you today? Well, I mean, it's tremendous. I mean, it's just this idea, it, 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 a couple things. It, it's like this idea of sometimes we think we can't make a difference because uh, the, the, the problems in the world are so large and systemic. And whether it's as a teacher, whether it's as a doctor, it's like, w- what can we do to, to address these larger problems? But it, all, it also reminds you to never lose sight of those kind of individual capacities you can to, to influence people, right? And to really shape people's lives. You know, as a doctor, you might be in a, in, a, in a setting with a clinic where people are, there's so many structural forces against them. But that doesn't mean that you still can't do great things, you know, to help people, uh, even in that sort of same way. So she would help me. And I would probably have never have been on the trajectory that I've been on it. And I sort of had that experience. It's hard to imagine that I would have eventually found myself in medical school, um, you know, having written a book. I mean, all those sort of things that I don't think I would have envisioned, um, you know, at that point in my life. Um, you know, you were asking at the beginning sort of, what is it like to be a taking, what was a day in the life for me as a young person? And so it's, it's interesting because I think about how different it is in my, my kids' life. I have two children now who are, you know, 12 and 10. Um, and I think about how different my life was because, you know, um, you know, so my mom worked during the day. My dad worked nights. He worked nights at his go- at the grocery store. And so like during the summers, you know, kids now, they do all these, pro- they do all these programs and they do all these camps and, um, you know, you know, academic or athletic, all kinds of, I didn't do anything. It was amazing. Like in terms of like level of like enrichment, um, you know, I was, imagine me, you know, as a middle schooler and I'm just basically at home, just sort of, my dad's like sleeping part of the day because he's worked all night. Um, and there's no one, I'm not going to any camps. I'm just sort of figuring things out. Uh, maybe I'd, you know, watch television. Maybe I, maybe I played, I played a lot of basketball because that was the one thing I really loved to do. Um, but I was also kind of into like numbers and I, and so I played video games, but not like the, they were like, it was really weird. These were like, they were like video games that didn't have, um, like action. It was like actually numbers. It was like, it's like what people now call fantasy sports stuff. It was like way ahead of it. So I was really into the numbers sort of thing. And so I, I do that, but I wasn't like, I think about all the times where I, I didn't, I wasn't reading books. I wasn't doing all the things that kids could do to enrich themselves for like, you know, and so by the time I uh, got to like taking the SAT or something, I think I was at a tremendous disadvantage because I had never had any of those preparatory sort of, you know, things that could have helped me. Right. So some of that's a, a situation of class, right? And, and and just your exposure to things and knowing the right people who can, who know this and know that. I didn't have any of those sort of things, you know, uh, coming along. And so um, I played a lot of sports and played, spent a lot of time playing basketball in the backyard. And if you would ask me as a 14 year old, you know, if I would have, I probably would have thought that I had a better chance of being a really great basketball player than of being a, a doctor. I mean, just because I just didn't, that's what I knew. And that's, you know, that's what I'd seen. And so it's just, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's that's, that reality is so powerful. And so that teacher's experience to sort of circle back to her was to open me up to a world in which I could see myself in a different way in relationship to the world. You know, the things that seemed like they were, had been, were cut off were not available to me. Maybe they were, maybe they were available. You know, it wasn't that even then I thought I was going to be a doctor, but just the idea of maybe I could still be a, could go and be an academic person and sort of, I could entertain that side of me and it would be something that would be valued. And I mean, that, that was all that was kind of unknown. And so that experience really helped me sort of on the path towards towards getting there. When you went to the magnet school and then afterwards to college and to medical school, um, I believe you talk a lot about imposter syndrome. And I guess, was there any point in your life where you 
started something new and maybe didn't feel an imposter syndrome and like really felt like, wow, yes, I made it so far and like I belong to be like I belong here and like I've really worked hard for this and things like that. Yeah, I think if maybe further along in, in medicine, we can maybe get to that point. There's a lot of, you have to fast forward through a lot of my life to get to that point, though. <laughs> a lot of fast forwarding. Um, because it, it kept showing up in different ways. Like even for me, when it came down to choosing college. So so I went through high school where I was in this magnet program with a lot of students who were, you know, um, who, who did well. And a lot of these students went to really, you know, um, expensive and fancy and, and well-known and famous kind of colleges. Um, I had some of those opportunities myself, um, but there was this, still this sort of lagging sense of like, you know, gee, you know, but how would I go to a school like, you know, Yale or, or somewhere like that or, and, uh, or Penn, you know, for instance, um, how would I go to a school like that with my background? My parents are in college educated. Um, and, and, you know, those folks there are also, you know, have so much more than me, right? There was still that kind of mentality. And so for me, it felt a little bit much much more comfortable for me to, to, to choose the college that I did. Uh, University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, it was a state school. They were actually, in the program, I was in a program that was recruiting minority students um, to, to train in sciences. And so there was, and I was already a student in a science tech program in my high school. They were actively recruiting students like that for their school. So there was a certain comfort level thinking that I could go to this school and I could go in this program and I could probably succeed. So that was one point in my time where I felt like it was a comfortable kind of, um, you know, decision because I felt like I could probably do it. And it was also a school, the level of their basketball, I played basketball for, for a while in college. The level that they were in was the level that went to, I was sort of could play at as well. And so it all kind of felt comfortable. So you asked that question. Um, but so, but then as I got through college, you know, they, once I was there, they really encouraged us to sort of like to dream big, you know, have the greatest aspirations, you know, you're, you're a really good student, you can do everything. And so that's when I sort of reached out broad, more broadly for medical school in terms of applying to medical schools. Um, and that's how I sort of eventually wound up at Duke. And then that's where, of course, that, uh, and that's when sort of my book starts. And that's where sort of the imposter syndrome really kind of, you know, took back hold in a pretty big way when I started medical school. Because I was going from a smaller state school that didn't have that sort of national reach to a, you know, to a big medical school where there were many people who had who were very different, and I was very much the outlier in terms of my um, my background being first generation. So, what was the process like to apply to medical school? Since you're the first person in your family to go to medicine. Yeah, so I think a, a really important experience for me happened uh, during college, where I. Um, after my first year of college, a summer program, I got um, uh, applied and I guess somehow they arranged it where I was at this, this, this mentorship program with the NIH. Uh, it was a National Institute of Health. And there was a um, black physician there. He's a, he was a cardiologist. He had gone to Johns Hopkins for medical school. He was a, and he was a fellow, he was in his fellowship, I believe at the time. And so I was working in a lab in which he was part of. Um, and what he helped do was sort of make it seem a little bit more normalized because before that, the idea of being a black person as a physician really still seemed foreign to me. I didn't have any sort of vision or models of that, certainly not in my own world um, at all. Um, like my dentist growing up was, was black, but, but other than that, it was like, it wasn't really, it seemed like a, it pretty seemed pretty far-fetched. And so he was able to make me, um, to meet with uh, current students at the University of Maryland who were medical students at the time and at Johns Hopkins and got to meet them. And it all seemed a little bit more possible after interacting with them and seeing their lives and seeing what their experiences were like. And so that was sort of kind of the first step um, towards being able to think that I could do that. Now within my family, yeah, I mean, my family doesn't really, you know, they just have a sense of like, well, that's, that's, you know, there's a sense of like pride, like, wow, my boy's going to go to medical school is going to be a doctor. There was sort of that sense. It wasn't like a, a sense of, 
they weren't discouraging me, but of course they have, but at the same time, when I have struggles later on, they have no idea what medical school is about or how to relate to what my struggles were because, because it, because they, all they would think is, well, gee, you're in medical school. Isn't that great? You know, you know, you're the, you're the person, my family is going to be a doctor. And so it was that sort of thing. But as far as getting to med school, everything was, they were certainly happy and supportive of that. So when you did go through some of these struggles and who did you turn to then, um, like, were there certain people who you felt would understand sort of some of the challenges that you were facing? And what, like, I guess, who comprised your support system? Well, I think what's interesting about this, about the first generation, this is what I think is really exciting and most interesting about it, is that it, what it does is it offers you, um, because people, all of us tell ourselves stories about the other people around us. And a lot of times those stories aren't what they seem. I mean, I think we, 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 we play those games with ourselves all the time. So like I would look in, a, and this is like, I would look in a classroom of students and, you know, they're mostly all, you know, white and Asian, of course, in, in these settings. And I would already tell myself stories that these, that these students have come from backgrounds that are all, you know, highly successful. Their parents are, you know, you know, their, their parents have gone to all the, the top places and they're making all, all this money. And so I've already told myself this story, and, and, and but it's, it's not always true. It's often not true at all, but I was very much, um, victim to sort of believing those sort of things. And so I probably, what I'm, the point is, is I probably isolated myself from people who may have been able to relate to parts of my experience by making these assumptions up front and not knowing it. That's what's so great about something like this. So I, I was involved with, with a similar first generation program at Duke um, earlier, you know, similar thing earlier this fall. And it was just so cool to sort of see the multi multiracial composition of the students. That was so, I thought it was really exciting to see that because there were four faculty, four was faculty. All of us came from different backgrounds. There was an Asian faculty member, there was a wife. I mean, that was cool. The faculty were all different, the students. And so it was really awesome to see that. Um, because, and it was really surprising to me because I, one of the students, um, a couple of students, like they had gone to like, one of the students had gone to like a community college before they got to, and you think about a school like Penn or Duke, you, I, you're not mad, necessarily imagine that the student was had that sort of a journey to a place like that. And that itself was cool to see and to, and to talk about. So I have no idea in my class in med school, what it was like. And because I'd already told myself these sort of assumptions uh, about how different I was or how isolated I was. And so I think it's so, this, this was so cool about that. So to get back to who, who was I talking to, um, my instinct, of course, was to kind of gravitate towards the other black students. But that's complicated because some of the black students said, like a couple of kids, you know, their, their parents were both doctors. And so it wasn't just as simple as, as that, right? It's, it's certainly something that's not as simple as just racial classification. Um, but that was sort of a kind of what I would gravitate towards um, for support uh, in those early days. Um, but I, I think what I may have done is unfortunately cut myself off from other potential um, people. And so I think that's a, a lesson for the you know, the audience out there. It's just that sort of, um, and that's what's great about this, you know, this whole sort of concept um, is it not sort of just cut yourself off off the bat because you don't really know what you, how much you might have more in common people than you realize. Absolutely. I resonate with that so much because I remember having some of these preconceived notions of who was in my class. And I remember finding like one of my best friends now is also FGLI. And I remember thinking like, oh, what? There's no way, you know, she had just, I mean, she, she was white, went to Columbia, you know, and unless you ask, you sometimes you make these uh, sharp judgments of who someone is or where they come from, but it's not always but you know it's not always the case, and it's important to to explore that a little bit more. Um, and our group itself, like our group at Penn, is so diverse. Uh, it's really it's really quite incredible. Yeah, I would agree, and I think being white and like 
being invited, I think, during interview day to go to like the diversity breakfast at Penn. I don't think I went because I didn't realize like why I was being invited for, as like I didn't know if everyone was invited. I don't know. I didn't and I didn't feel like I should go. Um, and then like once I finally met the FGLI group and like realized that it was so many different people that I like felt like I belonged instantly. I yeah, I just wish we I don't know, I guess that was more clear earlier on, but it's not because we all make assumptions, I would say. Yeah, I think this is a great, I mean, the FGL, I think it's such a great uh, group for that reason, just because it, it, does, it can bring people together who have different backgrounds, at least and certainly superficial differences, but then they can still have such a common, some, some, some common threads. I think that's just because, you know, so much of our world continues to sort of put people in these, in these separate, you know, and, and it's just so interesting to sort of, and it's great to sort of see that. So yeah, I think this is really cool. And so the more I've been involved, and I've had other students now reach out to me who, again, I may have made assumptions were not FGLI. And they, and so I still have to catch myself um, to not do that. And so, because it's just, I've been conditioned to do that for so long. I also like using bed legs as an excuse to get to know physicians who are FGLI because you it, it's hard to just go ask about people's identities and their backgrounds. But if you like send them um, information about this podcast that you're doing, it's called Med Legs, and then this is what we talk about. And I feel like um, that has helped more people open up uh, to talking to us and to sharing uh, about their identities as FGLI. So you talked about identifying more with um, Black students just because you can physically see that they have similarities um, to you. Were there any instances where there were, it was really noticeable that their experiences were different from yours because of their socioeconomic status? Well, I think I, meant, I mentioned that there was one, a couple of classmates. I know one who has his parents. I think parents are both physicians, um, in, in his case, and so you know they were, and so there was a certain just familiarity and knowledge with everything, all things medicine, and just all the all the whole process, and 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 just and so it was it was certainly um, clear that there was. Um, yeah, you just felt different. You know, you just felt you just felt like you were, you just felt different, and just like you would with, with in any other case with interacting with any other student who may come from a from that sort of background. There was a certain sense of like, can you measure up? You know, um, and and then that's that sort of a you know, that sort of thing. So when I first uh, started that um, uh, that magnet high school, you know, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a magnet high school. It was a a high school that had a magnet program within it. And so there was, a, there was another part of the school, which was just a general kind of high school, right? And then there was a separate sort of science and tech magnet portion of the school. And so um, uh, there was a, um, oh, I guess I guess I just wanted to tell us, this is interesting kind of kind of uh, tidbit about it. So uh, to give you an example of uh, people being discouraging, right? Sort of seeing you. So as a, as a ninth grader, uh, a teacher came up to me. This teacher was—it was not a—it wasn't, wasn't a sports teacher. He was, a, you know, a regular teacher at the school, and I guess he didn't know at the time that I was in the program. Um, and he said, um, you know, because it's—you know, can't tell now. You know, we're on a podcast or anything, but I'm really tall, and so I'm well over six feet. Um, I, at that time, I was probably at least six three or four, even then. Um, and he said, um, the only way you can get to college is if you um, play basketball. And so your goal here at the, at the school should be to uh, maintain your eligibility and to get the minimum score in the um, you know SAT. And so you just think about like, people putting you in boxes before you even get started. Um, another time I had, a, had a, a teacher say that you can't really study for the SAT. You know, you just and so and you think about, but you think about the disadvantages that can sort of 
bring to you because I mean, there's a whole industry built upon all these preps things. If they didn't work, they wouldn't exist, right? I mean, obviously they they must do something because they wouldn't be such a billion dollar industry. And so I hear I'm this is this is one of the so the the, the, the limitations or, or things you have to overcome, right? To be into being in this FGLI set, you know, is the, the idea that you, you you can't study for an SAT. They decide that you should only sort of achieve the minimum, right? So these are things you have to have to overcome. And so you know, other students have the complete opposite in terms of expectations, right? And so and so here you have to sort of overcome low expectations in some ways. So what I'm saying is that there was a mix. There were people there who were that, in that sort of limiting you in a certain box, and there were other people there who were trying to sort of encourage you. But you could sort of see there's sort of there's a lot of sort of forces kind of coming at you from different directions um, uh, in that setting. And these are all like these are all like adult, you know, people. These aren't like your peers. These are like, you know, adult uh, influences that you're sort of having to navigate. Yeah, I'm really sorry that you had to experience that. I feel like especially when you're young, younger, I feel like this that that gets to you. It, it like <laughs> affects your psyche. And I, I think about I think it's interesting. You brought up this idea of like low expectations and you know, people having those of, you know, certain students, but then sometimes you also hear this other idea that's, I feel like paradoxical, where you have to work twice as hard to get half the credit. Um, how have you sort of, have you experienced that in your journey to where you are today? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole adage that, you know, we're growing up, it's particularly, I mean, it may be in other communities, certainly in the community of, of African-Americans, you hear that a lot, this idea of working twice as hard to sort of, to, to sort of get to the same level. Um, so, it comes up later in, in training. So like, if you think about like high school, you think about college, a lot of it's just based on quantitative, like what are your grades? What are your scores? And so it's a little bit more sort of like these numbers are kind of there. Um, but as you get further along, the, that starts to recede and then the, the valuations become much more subjective, right? Um, and there's certainly, I think that's where it could certainly kind of kind of come out um, uh, where people don't take, um, just sort of kind of assume a baseline that maybe you won't be as good um, and so those are, that's where things sort of start to, I think, like in your clinical evaluations, um, when you're sort of getting on the wards you know, as a medical student and beyond, I think that's where you start to see some of that um, challenge of working, you know, feeling like you need to work twice as hard um, to sort of get the same level of, um, you know, credit. I mean, certainly in it, as, you get, as you get further along in your medical career and faculty, yeah, those sort of things, you certainly can feel some of those sorts of things. Um, I think I think I was insulated somewhat um through the earlier period, just in a sense of, um, you know, again, it was just kind of great. It's just kind of more quantitative, you know, just numbers based. And I think that sort of helped me um, in some ways. Although I will say this though, I, I think the one thing with, with the numbers though, that um, this is, I think, really important for the FGI, FGI um, community is, you know, when we talk about, this may be a little off the subject, but when we talk about numbers, I think we have to understand, you know, this is another term that people use a lot. It's this distance traveled. Like, what are the barriers that person's had to sort of overcome? Like, again, I'm, I'm someone who comes from a setting where people tell you ST is not important or you can't study for it. And so how do you measure someone's score like that against someone who's had been been prepping for it most of their life, right? I mean, so, and so how do, and so what is, so I think it's it's, it's tricky, right? And, and and it's true for not just for, for, for SAT, but for MCAT as well. I mean, these sort of things. And so I think there's this, there's this numbers thing, which I think is, uh, even though I'm someone who's, who's done fairly well at that, I find it pretty um, limiting um, and it doesn't tell the full scope of a person's um, journey or their ability or their potential to be a good doctor. Like if you think about medical school and, and MCAT and what is it measuring in terms of your ability to be a good physician or step one once you get in med school and, and what is that really measuring? I mean, there's real questions to be answered um, about those things. And I, I have you know some serious skepticism about what it's actually measuring. 
now that I'm at the end of that game, you know, I'm actually a practicing person, doctor and know what you really need. You wonder how much of that was really helpful. Yeah. I'm actually really interested in your feelings after, um, after people would make these comments to you. So for instance, I was told back in high school that I wouldn't get into Penn for like undergrad. And here I am now at medical in medical school at Penn. But um, I just remember being very angry. And every time I went to I went to like a like cool like summer um, program in sciences with a bunch of other students from very good high schools. And they I would hear about the different AP ex- like classes they had at their school. And I would just remember being very angry all the time that my school didn't have those things. So I, yeah, I'm just really interested in like, your feelings when people said that were you angry? Were you like more motivated? A little all that like, I mean, I went through periods of, of being angry, of being like that sensing the unfairness of it. And, you know, and this idea that I wouldn't be able to get what they had. It's really it's, what you struggle with is this idea that you'll never be able to catch up. Like no matter what they have, you'll never be able to catch up with what they, what they, the head start that they had ahead of you. Even if you end up going to the same schools or in the same programs, there's a sort of sense that you can't quite catch up because you haven't had the luxury of traveling to this particular, these particular places that they've all traveled to and for all their vacations. There's, there's, a, there's a sense you kind of have to kind of, kind of, um, you fight with and kind of have to sort of work through. Um, but there's certainly that anger, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of comes, comes to mind. Um, there's a sense of like unfairness about all of it for sure. I guess my other question on the lines of like what it feels like to be so successful coming from the backgrounds that all of us have come from, um, is do your, so I guess first question, do your parents still live where you grew up and do you feel, and you talked a little bit about how you different it is like how you grew up versus how your kids are now growing up. Do you ever feel any kind, like, can you talk a little bit about the dissonance that you feel between like your parents and like when you really, I don't know, for instance, when I went to college, I really felt in the middle of like where my my hometown is. And like, I didn't feel like I belonged at school and I didn't feel like I belonged to my hometown anymore either. So can you talk a little bit about that? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, So just to speak to the, the dissonance piece, it's, it's there in a lot of different ways. Um, there was a period um, in my life where, you know, I'm just, it's just the way it was, where I felt like I was, I wouldn't say I was ashamed of my background, but I felt like I just would want it felt like I was just, it just felt I didn't belong here kind of thing. Like, and so I remember as a, you know, in, in med school and, and you would be in this room and then this person's parent was, you know, on this faculty and this person's parent was doing this and they were in prior practice in surgery, medicine, law, whatever it was, maybe the case. And it was just a sign, a sense of just feeling like you didn't, you know, and they'd grown up and like, I remember one time even like, um, speaking of distances, I remember one time uh, going to like the, the faculty club for the first time. Um, you know, and so it's one guy who's a student there and his dad was a member because his dad was on faculty. He goes to faculty club. Every single person there is, is white. Uh, and it seems, except for the people who are sort of like the, the service folks who are all black. I'm sorry, Dr. Tweedy, do you mind just telling us what a faculty club is? I, uh, yeah. So, fa- I mean, okay. Yeah. So just, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's not, I don't even belong. I don't even belong to it, but myself, like, there are all these sort of like, you know, little like layers of like privilege that people have sort of carved out for themselves over time. And so it's like, you know, the faculty at this, at Duke, but at other schools too, they, they have a, they have a place 
where they can just sort of have a memory, like a country club almost, like a country club membership. Oh, I almost. totally know what you're talking about. They had yeah. one at Georgetown. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's like a, it's like a place where they can have like, you know, tennis courts and nice pools and, and nice, you know, drinks and places for, you know, to have banquets and stuff just for, just for people can sort of just sort of bask in their privilege basically. Um, and so the first time I went, first time I went to this place and, you know, this guy invited me, his classmate, his dad was a member and I'm there. And again, all, all the patrons there, all the, the members are white. Um, and then all the sort of staff were serving them drinks and whatnot, whoever black. And you can speak up, they talk about dissonance. I mean, and so I, there I am, and I'm like the only black person there who's not in that capacity. And, um, you sort of have all these thoughts that kind of come through your, come through your mind. Um, it's actually, it's kind of like, it's weird. It's almost like there's three different things that kind of go through my head when my head when I was in that setting there's one party that's like man this is cool you know I've worked hard I've earned this I'm, I'm part of this club kind of thing right um, but then there's another party that says wow you know there's there's really yeah you know segregation is not legal illegal but it still happens and people have found ways to make it happen um, and then it's just part of you and so there's a sense of anger about that like why is it this way you know why can't other people have access to these sort of things um, and then the third part is almost like it's distance part goes. You almost feel like well, if I'm here um, and maybe my success is kind of coming at the expense of everyone on the outside, because if they can look at me and say, oh, well, you made it, you're successful, then maybe that makes people think, well, maybe we don't need to change anything, right? Because you can really, you can still be successful if you just work hard enough. And so there's that kind of, I don't know if that makes sense to you. So it's almost like your brain kind of splits in three different directions. Um, when you're in that kind of world. So that distance is really powerful there. Uh, and then when you, when you think about like, like my, my wife is also FGLI as well. Um, and, ju- and just the idea of, uh, I mean, that's part of probably, probably our connection, but we, you know, big thing we had, you know, as far as the connection goes um, in, in medicine. And so, but if you think about like um, how your family sort of responds to, you know, your, your, your experience, one thing is that they, like when I had struggles, they didn't really understand it because it was almost like, you know, you're here, you're this great place. And and if you're not, you know, it's almost like they had a hard time understanding kind of like, cause I couldn't explain to them what, the, what was happening with the rotations. You know, like you say, you say internal medicine, like, what is that? Like, you know, like, you know, like we, we people know what OBGYN is because, or pediatrics, but so many feels, you know, it's like, they don't even like really know what that is. And so it's like to try and explain, you know, you know, that it was hard and understand the challenge of it. Um, and what might be difficult about it. It was hard. Um, and then, because I remember my wife also struggled in, in med school at one period, and, and, and it was almost like there was this almost sense of like, you are the one who's almost like the standard bearer for the family, because you're the one that's gotten to the highest level. And so you're, you're standing on all their shoulders of everyone else. And then if you fail, you fail out, then you've kind of let everybody down. You haven't just like let yourself down. It's almost, and you haven't even just let your, it's almost like you've let everyone in your community down who might, you know, who, who, who may aspire to this one day, because like, because like if you fail, it's like, well, maybe we should just stay where we are. Maybe we shouldn't reach for this higher level. And so you feel this extra pressure. And so I think my wife felt that as well. And so that's tough. And so that's, and so, but then there's also that piece, as you mentioned, but when you go back to that community, you know, and then you see yourself in relation to other people and where they are in life, there is this kind of like, there's a disconnect too. Because now you're like, you, you sort of, as I way I put it, you sort of have like a foot in, in, in these different worlds, but you don't necessarily have two feet in either world like you once did. You know, you've kind of, you kind of, so there's a certain distance that kind of happens. Not with your immediate, not with my immediate family so much, but like the more, you know, extended family, as well as like people I grew up with. There's definitely that sort of disconnect. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, those are all real. I mean, that's sort of at the heart, right, of, of kind of this whole challenge and, and dilemma of being FG, FGLI are those kind of um, conversations and issues. And you were talking about the the burden of uh, getting um, into medicine and having this success be like a representation of your family and your whole community, that it's not just uh, you having success, but like your whole family having success as well. And I feel that as um, a, a student from an immigrant background, that my family works so hard to to do like, I don't know, like to clean houses and be a, a janitor uh, so they can support me going to school, that I, I have to choose a career that is successful and has um, like uh, a good financial outcome so I can support them in the future. Um, so I'm wondering if your FGLI background influenced um, your decision to go into medicine or uh, the specialty that you chose. So, I'll, so just to kind of to piggyback on two things you said, uh, the piece about um, the sort of the uh, my wife, you know, she comes from initially family from Jamaica, and there was certainly that sort of and there's this whole sort of kind of trope about sort of the immigrant sort of experience or immigrant mentality of coming to this country and and sort of working really hard. Uh, and taking a huge chance by changing your lifestyle to change to go to this new land to sort of build a better life. And so my wife certainly felt a lot of that sort of, you know, experience that you're describing or that sort of pressure um, very much so. I talk about my grandmother a few times in my book, but uh, as far as her experience with healthcare and having high blood pressure, and, and she died during my first year of, of med school. And so my grandmother cleaned houses. You mentioned that. So she she grew up in the, in the, in the south southern Virginia, and she was one of twelve children. And her dad died when she was really young, and so I mean, twelve kids on a farm, extremely poor. Uh, it's a term called sharecroppers. You guys may or may not know about. But so that was sort of the, her family. Did, you know that that's sort of a world. I mean, very very poor. Um, and she, she came to, to Washington D.C. area. You know, eventually worked as a you know clean houses, and that was her um, you know professional work, and also office buildings and that sort of thing. And uh, so she died when I was a first year medical student. And so, so she knew about how, you know, you know, she kind of knew the journey that I was kind of getting along the way, but um, she had a stroke when I was in college. So she kind of, it was totally not fully, she knew up to the point where I was kind of like going, applying to medical school and she knew I was going to become a doctor and then she had a stroke. And so she was never quite the same at that point. But when she died, this is funny you mentioned about this idea of pressure. So, so we go back to um, come back home for the funeral and in the church. And it's in Washington, D.C. It's in a um, kind of a lower income section of the city where we've gone to church for, you know, her whole life. And um, when she gets up there, the pastor who knows who my, my pastor married my parents. So he's known my family for a long time. And then my grandmother dies. He gets up there. And, the, and one of the first things he says that kind of validates her life is that she worked hard. And now her son is a medical student at Duke. And so it was like, I was this person and I, and I felt like just so like, I can't believe, you know, and, and people start looking at me like I'm the one who sort of has put meaning on her life, you know? And it felt so, it felt like such a, like, I can't believe that. And then they asked me to come talk and, you know, it, it just felt, it felt overwhelming, honestly, in that moment um, to sort of, to sort of feel that. But it was, it was very, it was like sort of a, a visual kind of what it's like to be someone coming from a, a, a one background and then suddenly be in this other world. That was such a powerful experience because it was almost like my, my existence was in some ways a validation of her entire life, which is like, wow. My mom kind of feels that way too she always talks about how I well I tell her um like wow this this experience must have been hard for you um because 
Like she had to move to a completely different country and lose her friends and start all over. But she's actually okay with that. She she says, I'm so lucky because my daughter is at this great medical school. And I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's very similar to what you were talking about, that the your parents and your family is just so proud of the success that you've um, brought for them that it feels like what they have done is worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So on a, a somewhat lighter note, so I think what sometimes happens in these, in these situations is that, you know, some families become to re- rely on that, that person really important. Like for like, like let's say my wife, she's a doctor and, and her family relies on her extremely very much for like any kind of medical question concern she's like the person right any kind of thing everyone comes to her now uh, my family's not that way it's, it's been for, for some reason like my mom i'm like like when i when i when she brings up something she saw on tv or something and i know about it she's like, oh you know about that i'm like yes i went to medical school i'm a doctor and so it's so funny whereas like my wife is like you know she sort of fits more that stereotype stereotype of being the the person who you know their whole family kind of centers around her my family's taking a little different track uh it's, it seems like there's sometimes they're almost in as much disbelief as i am that i've uh, come where I've come, you know. <laughs> so, so this is pretty funny. Like, yes, mom, you can ask me some medical questions. I could actually answer them. As I mentioned at the beginning, I felt like it was a disadvantage in some ways. You know, my background that it was someone going to make me ill prepared, and I, and I sort of would be kind of keep it close to the vest. Um, you know, kind of what my background was, and that maybe I wasn't as well off. But as I found, as I got more with patients, in some ways, it often proved to be an asset. Um, you would see patients from, because certainly in medicine, you see people from all walks of life. Um, and a lot of times that experience that I had, you know, in many ways uh, of being sort of having a blue collar experience was, was very much an asset with patients. Um, so something that you, it was a way in which you could turn something that you perceived as a weakness into a very much a strength. Um, and so this ability to connect with people and to relate to people's problems and understand what it could be like to someone to just, you know, to not have money or to not, you know, to have these different struggles. Like it, it wasn't like I had to sort of take a leap to understand some of those different experiences because um, I could experience some of that through the lens of my own family, family in my neighborhood. So in some ways, those experiences can be really helpful. Um, I think it also has continued to um, have me sort of have a desire to sort of, um, I think you asked really about the twice as hard thing. Um, someone asked about that. So I think where it came up, I, I wrote about it, uh, in the, in my book was this, is it with that experience earlier on when the professor sort of doubts my, um, whether I belong in Duke, you know, this sort of idea of, you know, there's this whole, there's a scene of being in the classroom and then the professor approaches me and comes up to me and says, you know, are you here to fix the lights in the classroom? And that's sort of like how my sort of med school experience kind of started off in some ways. And so there was very much this idea of needing to prove myself. Right. And so that's a really kind of really imbued me with this idea. Well, I have to show him, right. Is this guy, idea about being twice good kind of thing. I have to really show this person, whereas other people may be taken for granted that they belong, I have to show people that I belong. And so I, I think that kind of gets to the earlier question. Um, and so there's times which that makes you angry. There's times in which you're upset about that. But I think I, I realize that I would have to show people um, that I belong. Um, and so I think that's it. And so I think that's kind of carried me forward. And so that's where that probably twice as good um, thing really comes up the most is idea. Because I think there's, it's like the, the assumption is that you're not that. And so you have to sort of, and so you have to initially have to sort of show otherwise. Now, as you get further along, these things change. I mean, so like I'm, I've been much further along in the career, but when you're in the early phases of training, that's where they come up. So you were talking about being an asset in terms of 
your patients and being able to relate to them and some of their experiences coming from an FGLI background. I was wondering sort of like how, if, if at all, like, have you had conversations with your colleagues who may not understand that experience as well? Or like, have you been able to advocate for your patients? If you ever come across maybe conversations or statements or assumptions about patients that maybe rub you the wrong way and like how you're able to sort of um, stand up using your own background at all. Because I feel like I struggle with that personally. Um, sometimes I hear, oh, this person's drug seeking or, you know, this person, um, why aren't they taking their medications? But I'm just wondering now that you are where you are, like, what has that looked like for you? Yeah, so it's certainly from my vantage point now, it's a, you know, it's easier as a faculty person, right? Certainly. I think, I, I'm glad you asked that question. I think I struggle with it myself. I think I wasn't even, I think, I wouldn't say I struggled. I think I actually probably suppressed it. Um, the kind of things that you're describing. I don't, so I think because I was so focused on just trying to fit in and 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 do what I needed to do, and I think I kind of just repressed. Maybe that's the right. Maybe repressed those kinds of thoughts or feelings. Um, not, I wouldn't say that was the right thing to do, but I think that's probably what I did at the time. Um, as I got further along in the training, maybe in residency, I think I started to have more of those kinds of more candid conversations with people that I work with. Um, Sometimes they were colleagues. It wasn't necessarily even higher ups. Like sometimes colleagues will make assumptions about people. Um, I got I, one more time. A person was making um, a colleague made some assumptions about a. Uh, he worked in a clinic of people. The kids who are mostly you know lower income, poor kids, and he kind of made some kind of sweeping statement about them. And I was just like, well, gee, you know, like what do you mean? You know, and I kind of just sort of brought it up there, and we kind of it kind of led to because he was just starting saying like the kids don't really want to do well, or or they're just wild. And it was like, well, you know, and, and so we just kind of explored like you know, how many assumptions he was making about the people, about the school, about just all sorts of things. And, and just, and just the dangers of, of sort of making this sort of sweeping kind of, you know, generalization of, all, of everyone in that environment. And so um, we had a nice candid conversation about that. So that was one time I can recall sort of bringing it up in a more direct way. Um, but yeah, a lot of times in med school is tough because you're, you're sort of trying to navigate your own space. I think the, the, the biggest challenge as a med student sometimes is the knowledge gap that you either you have or perceive you have compared to your supervisors, because maybe you're thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe they're, I'm just a student. I don't know, you know, sort of thing. Right. So there's that kind of sentiment that may sort of hold you back. I think talking to your own peers, your colleagues is often a great thing. Again, I wish I had this sort of support um, piece. A lot of times I think as a student, it's also the asking the questions can be helpful as well. Like putting things in a question, like I'm curious about X, Y, Z. I wonder about X, Y, Z versus, I think versus saying, I think you're a, you know, a bigot or, I mean, that's probably not going to go very well. You know, you probably have to sort of be more, more thoughtful about how you do it. Um, and um, so I think those are a strategy. I think I would say encourage the students to do. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, it's easy. I think a lot of times it's not even necessarily bad intentions. I could be honest with you, because as you get further along as in training, sometimes you make assumptions. A lot of times you just, you're just trying to do the most expedient thing and you've done enough of it in medicine. You're just trying to kind of get through the day. And so it may not necessarily be that you're setting out to do something problematic, but you actually are. And so this is where students can be helpful. Like if you can sort of just, cause sometimes you don't, it's not being called out. It's just, sometimes you're just not even aware. Um, and I'm, I mean, it clear, of course there's people who are, who are clearly aware and are biased. I'm not trying to let them off the hook. What I'm saying is that there are other people out there who aren't. And sometimes you just kind of go through and you don't even know what you're doing. And so a student can be really helpful because maybe you've made an assumption about people on Medicaid because you've seen a bunch of people, but that doesn't mean anything. Right. And so, um, um, and, and maybe you're wrong about this, about this particular situation or this person, uh, again, um, 
but that's why I think this, this 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 group is is great because it can just sort of bring it can help break down. How many times am I going to say that? Right? I'm going to say that at least five more times. I think it can help break down some of those just preconceived notions about you know you know I, I work with a colleague uh, and this must I think this must have been internship year and he was I think he was from. Um, Gosh, I'm not sure what country he's from. Maybe it was maybe it was Pakistan or somewhere, but I'm not exactly sure. And I, I don't want to say for sure, but I remember just the fact that he and his family they were on Medicaid for me, and how I found that so surprising because again I thought he was had come from a, a background and, and it, it was just so surprising to me and it sort of just kind of it, it made me take a step back, right? And so I just, I think that's so interesting because I think again we we have to always constantly be careful with these assumptions we make about different these labels right um and it was just so striking to sort of be in that experience and sort of see that and and then that and then his experience with that was so helpful in terms of talking with other patients who were on medicaid in ter- and then as particularly as he sort of liaison on with other doctors it was great to sort of see him in that role because he sort of brought that to bear from a personal experience. So again, I think that could be an asset, right? Because he very well knew the limitations of, of uh, the, the, the pros and cons of it in a real way that we only, those who haven't experienced it would only know from what we've kind of seen, you know, in textbooks or, or read about, but couldn't live that lived experience he had. So I think it was a tremendous asset for him because he knew how to work around the system to get the best for people in that situation. So that's an example of how you can do that. I really like how you said that you can, as a student, ask questions when you're, when you're tr- instead of like, calling someone out for lack of a better way to say it, but like to ask questions. Cause I think that's actually something that someone else has told me too, Anitra is that like, if so, like us attending or anyone like makes a comment about a patient that might be like a stereotype, you can always kind of play dumb as a student, even if you know what it is, or I probably wouldn't know what it is, honestly, but um, you can always kind of just be like, Oh, I don't know what that means. Like, can you explain it? And then I feel like they'll realize that they've made a really rude comment or that they're making a lot of really inaccurate assumptions about something. Yeah, I think sometimes it's the the shock factor too. You know, you're just taken aback and it feels like the window is closed by the time you've processed what they've actually said. But I think circling back and maybe asking later on, hey, you know, why did you think that? Or why did we make that management decision? Or is... Uh, is a point well taken. So thank you. Yeah. Another good point would be to talk to your peers as well to sort of run it by your peers. Because sometimes it might be that the, maybe the moment, like you said, the moment might pass because maybe you, you're in a situation in the emergency room, you may not work with that person again, but you still have that feeling in you. So I think it could be really helpful. Like you still have a feeling in you that something was not right. So maybe it could be that you start with your peers and you talk, just talk, talk it through because keeping that and holding that in is what can sort of be bad for you in the long run, I think. Um, and so processing, like, what do you think about this? Or what could we do? Or what should we do? Or, or, you know, what do you make of this? I think those conversations can be really helpful. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you think, like, I feel like sometimes you're like, oh, maybe I misinterpreted that. Or am I crazy? And having someone validate, like, you're not crazy. And actually, that was... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's huge. Exactly. I'm curious, Dr. Tweedy, what's next for you? Yeah. So, so, you know, as far as taking me through a day in my life now, I mean, you know, so it's, uh, so I kind of do, I have kind of three different things that I'm doing. So there's the, there's the clinical piece. So, and so the clinical piece is really, um, I mean, psychiatry is my specialty. Um, and, uh, you know, that involves a lot of like kind of consultative work where I'm working in, in primary care and mostly medical settings where you're sort of consulting with other doctors who have patients with 
start off with medical issues, but then there's also a sort of mental health kind of component to it. So really, I'm really interested in the inter- integration or interface of psychiatric care and general medical care. I think that's a re- I think right now for, for too long, it's a separate conversation But for us, but for too long, those two things have been separated out in ways which I think are detrimental to patients. And so I'm really interested in sort of how those two things uh, intersect. And so that's a lot of what I do clinically uh, is working at that, that forefront. Um, so over at Duke, I mean, I, I do... Um, yeah, you know, from an educational standpoint, I do a couple of different things as far as teaching courses. Uh, there's a course I do, which I really enjoy where, um, so Duke has a couple of different uh, sort of non-traditional tracks, one's for primary care based students. There's another one that's a track for students who are interested. It's called a longitudinal integrated um, program. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of schools are starting to do, Penn might have a program like that. Um, and so these students are more outpatient focused. Uh, and so I, I do a, like a behavioral health seminar. I have all sorts of interesting uh, guests and conversations and we dive deeper into mental health beyond just sort of the the, the sort of superficial level of, of psychiatry you might experience as a traditional medical student. We go into a lot of depth about all sorts of topics, which I think is really fascinating and interesting. And then my third piece of life is really kind of, from a professional standpoint, is sort of this writing and speaking um, sort of um, world. And so I, I, I give a lot of um, talks, a lot of presentations, a lot of different institutions, um, primarily medical schools and teaching hospitals, but also, you know, colleges and things like that. So there's a lot of work. I really enjoy it. You know, I'm not someone, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. I could never imagine honestly being in a position where to, to, to be doing these sort of things. Yeah, I was going to say, I could, I could not have expected you to say that you were an introvert. Just oh, extremely. So <laughs> extremely. So, so I, I could never imagine being in a situation where I'm like giving presentations to people and being interviewed and, and, and people are asking for my opinion about things and I'm supposed to be the expert. It's like, really? It's because it's, 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 it's a party that still kind of thinks back to your old self. You know, as we you know, the person we started with, it's like, how could this person never even thought they could even be in this position of being a doctor um, or being someone who's written a book or any of these things I could never have imagined. And so here, and so here I am in, these, in this role. Um, so yeah, so it, you just have to kind of embrace it. And um, there was a time in which I would have sort of, again, it's kind of, it's kind of circles back on the subject of, of sort of been kind of upset or um, frustrated that I have to explain my position as a black person or explain um, what it's like to be from a lower income background. But again, I, I've embraced it as an asset. I mean, it, it sort of gives you a different perspective on the world because I feel like I can sort of know both worlds. Like I know that world of people who sort of, like I know that faculty club world now. I've, I, I know that world, but I also know the other world. And, and so, yeah, there, there, at times it can be dissonance, but there can also be a sense, there's a sense where you can also feel a sense of growing comfort um, because you, 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 you sort of live that world and you've done something with a lot of other people haven't done. Like a lot of people stay in one place and they sort of, you know, you know, you know, we talk about this country being the land of opportunity. Of course it is in many ways, but a lot of times people end up where they start off. Right. And so there's a lot of research that talks about how people don't really cross class lines as much as, as we'd like. And so we've done that. And so you can really get a sense of, the, of, of being able to be a chameleon in some ways. And so there's a certain strength in that as well. And so I, I so I, Sometimes you may feel uncomfortable. Other times, you, as you get older and more comfortable, you can embrace it. So, and so that's kind of what I've, I've been doing more of. And so that's me with the speaking part. It's, so I continue to write. Uh, I like writing. Um, I've been doing a couple of different projects. I've been doing a lot of smaller things. Like I published an editorial in the New York Times earlier, like this past summer. Um, but I have. But I really, I'm really excited to write a, a story about. Um, to looking at you know looking more at psychiatry and the, the psychiatric ER in particular, I'm really interested in in that as a place for how society um, sort of where society falls apart 
is where a lot of things sort of happen there. And sort of sort of that as a metaphor for all the problems we have in society. We're kind of using the psych ER as that sort of metaphor for our problems with how we don't deal with you know, drug use, how we don't, our drug policies are poor, how we deal with homelessness, how we deal with so many things. Are, and so how much that sort of often finds its way to us. Um, I find that interesting um, in its own sort of way. So that's something I, I've been working on. Uh, I also um, am doing, I got, I'm talking a lot here, but I'm also in, do a lot of editing. So there's a, um, there's a, uh, something called the Bellevue Literary Review, and uh, I'm being involved with, and, and, and they're a lot. They do a lot of physician stuff. I'm in, it's based out of NYU historically. Yeah, so I'm, I'm involved with them some, and so I really enjoy. I enjoy reading other people's stuff and, and editing and offering them feedback. And now that I've sort of been on the other side of writing, I, I love to sort of help younger people who are trying to find their voice as well. We could have had a whole separate conversation about the idea of writing in medicine, which I really, it's a great passion of mine. Um, and so I do that as well. I'm working on a, a, a fiction book as well. And so, you know, so I'm working on a lot of different things. That's why things move really slowly for me because I have so many interests. Um, but it's, one of these days, all of it's going to come out. So, uh, so stay tuned and hopefully we can come back and talk about some of those other things um, at some point. And what I find is, you know, I work a lot with students in my in my life. You know, now, you know, again, I work with the medical students. Probably a third of what I do is working with medical students. Um, and I really, when people ask me what's um, what gives me the most optimism about where things are and where things can go, I, I usually say the answer are the medical students because it, it may seem. I mean, I honestly feel that way because I feel like um, you guys are bringing things to the table that were not on the table at all, you know, during my, during my training, things that I wish would have been around when I was a student, because I, I think, you know, these, these conversations we've been having in 2020 about how to, how to make our world better, how to make the medicine better. A lot of them, you, you'd be surprised how many of has been student driven, like, you know, students, so, so, so medical schools now are starting to have discussions about how do we formally instruct students on the social deterrence of health and how do we get people to understand these topics? A lot of that stuff, a lot of these conversations, I mean, this stuff's been around for 20 years, but it's like the student energy has really started to make it happen. Like people, because what happens in the academic world is people will just talk about this stuff and nothing and just keep talking and keep talking until someone makes them do something. And the students are often the ones that are making them do things. And so I think it's wonderful. And so I think this is great. I mean, again, it's wonderful because I was so excited when I did that meeting at Duke. It was back by four, three, four months ago because Duke just started a program last year, I believe. And I was so excited because, again, there were there were four physicians, all of us in different specialties, but all in different backgrounds. It was so exciting to see that kind of multiracial uh, experience. And, and it sort of it sort of helped deconstruct so many assumptions that all of us had made about each other. Um, you know, that white students have made about, made about other white students that, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's, everyone's making all these assumptions about other people and about each other. And so it helps deconstruct that when you really get to see the chance to learn about a person and learn their background. And so it's just been really cool um, for me to sort of be part of this. So, I mean, because it's not visible necessarily, right? You can't look at someone and necessarily know this, right? And so it's, it's something about you have to kind of bring voice to it. You have to tell someone for someone to kind of know uh, often. So I think it's really cool. So I wish you guys the best um, with all this. And it was great to hear your story and learn more about you as a person. Um, and you gave great insight as well. So thank you so much. And you're also just fun to talk to. Yeah, no, this has been fun. So we obviously have something really important in common, I think, as far as navigating this journey. So it's been awesome. So wish you guys best luck. Thank you. 
So before we go, I just want to make sure we say thank you to all of our listeners. We really love getting to know each other in front of you all, and we hope that you're really enjoying these conversations as much as we are. We'd love for you all to subscribe to our show and also follow us on our social media pages, which are at underscore medlegs on both Twitter and Instagram. And we really just want to encourage you to reach out to us with any additional questions, feedback, or suggestions that you have for the show. See you next time on Medlegs. Thanks.